Hello, hello, and welcome to Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon. This is 4S. I'm David Johnson. Let's get started. We are hearing from the Apologia Church. This is a sermon on Calvinism. Now, those of you who have a, an allergic reaction to Calvinism, I just encourage you to stick with this one uh, anyway. Calvinism is a hard pill to swallow, but what you need to understand is that it is so entrenched into mainstream Christianity that mainstream we Christians who claim not to be Calvinists still sound a lot like Calvinists, and, and they don't understand just how much of their thought has been influenced by Calvinism. And so, even though there may not be that many people who claim to be Calvinists, they, in fact, probably are a little Calvinist, and they just don't realize uh, their influences. Now, I will not be interrupting this sermon much, because... Calvinism kind of speaks for itself. Calvinists tend not to dodge the issues, the, the things that make Calvinism look bad. They take head on. Um, they, they tend to uh, be a little bit more aggressive with their religion, and they're very proud of it. They're proud of it, and they don't care if they make any sales, <laughs> they, you know, uh, which is actually part of Calvinism anyway. They, they really don't care. So they're, um, they're all about heresy hunting and, and calling out heretics and um, presenting their, their uh, some, of the, some of the craziest and hardest to digest parts of their religion very proudly and, and clearly. So you're not going to need me to highlight things in this sermon. Now, I'm going to skip around a little bit. Uh, so we're going to start with uh, a, a scripture reading, uh, which is key to his sermon. And we're going to skip down about 25 minutes, and we'll let it go for 30 or 35 minutes with very limited interruptions. In fact, I may not do any interruptions because it's, it's really not needed. And some of the places where I was listening to this where I thought, you know, I should, I want to stop right there and make some comments. He actually says the thing that I want to say anyway. Uh, now, we're, gonna, we're not going to play you the whole sermon. This sermon is about an hour and 22 minutes as a part of a five-part series. Uh, it's very good. So if you want to listen to more, if I think about it, I'll uh, leave a link and uh, you can follow it if you like. Most likely I'll forget to do that. But I do want you to hear this and I'll make some comments after the fact. And because I'm doing this on Saturday, I usually do this early in the week. I may not make all of my comments this round. I might come back into a supplemental later and, and uh, talk about a few more things. But by and large, I just want to leave you with the bulk of his important themes, and I'll let him describe those for himself. Hear now the words of the living and true God. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. He will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, 
Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make, his, make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. We are going to skip a very long-winded prayer and uh, jump to about the 25-minute mark, and uh, we'll listen for about 30 or 35 minutes after that. And as the church is growing and forming in history, now there's a new controversy. As John Calvin is dead already, and Jacob Arminius, the followers of a man named Jacob Arminius form what's called a remonstrance. They protested against the church at large at the time. They protested, and here's what they said. Listen closely. They, by the way, make sure and, and as you debate this issue and talk about it, know this. You can say this. They started it. The remonstrance happened, and they said this. Watch. Ready? We do not believe that man is so dead spiritually that he cannot respond to God. Protest. We deny that man is dead dead. We think that he is, of course, a sinner, but he is not so much of a sinner that he's incapable of responding to God's grace. He has a free will. Essentially, listen closely. As a side, this was not new. Their challenge to the church at the time wasn't a new challenge. This is something that had already been addressed in the history of the church. Pelagianism versus Augustinianism. That debate that took place where someone comes into the world as a blank slate. The church said, no, you come into the world as a fallen son or daughter of Adam. Here's what the Bible says, all these different texts. But then its sister comes along, semi-Pelagianism, that teaches what? That people have, what, spiritual sickness, that they're sinners, of course, but they're not so sinful that they can't respond to God. What the remonstrance taught with the followers of Arminius was not new. It was old, false teaching that had already been addressed. But they said, watch, people are not so dead that they can't respond to God spiritually. They're sick, in a sense. Next, they taught this, that we think that when God elects, he chooses people to save, because you can't get around that word. When someone says, I don't believe in election, I'm going to say, do you read, bro? The word election's on the page, predestined, predetermined. It's on the page. You have to have a doctrine of election. And they said this, we don't think that God chooses based upon his own sovereign will. We think that God essentially chooses based upon what he sees somebody responses to him. So think about it in this way. They would say something like this today, God looks through time to see who will choose him, and he elects based upon their choice of him. Another issue in this remonstrance, listen closely to this one. When we sing songs, listen close, this is big. When we sing songs like this, Jesus died for me. Jesus took my sin on that cross. He was thinking about me when he died for me. The Father was giving to Jesus the punishment for my sins. When you talk like that, welcome to Calvinism. You see, what the remonstrance was arguing was, ready? That God gave us the atonement to make people savable, to make them savable. He didn't actually, in that cross, accomplish salvation for anybody. He, in the cross, made salvation a possibility if people would, through their own free will, choose to cooperate with the grace of God to receive salvation. They also protested and they said this, we don't believe that God can save anybody by his own will and choice through his own power. We think that ultimately fallen sinful human beings 
when God tries to save them, they can, through their own exercise of free will, say no to God, and no matter what God really wants, He cannot ultimately manipulate their free will. That God is not, according to the Calvinists, able to save to the uttermost perfectly through His own power and might, raise dead people to life. They would say, no, 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 no. People are not so dead. They can cooperate and they can ultimately thwart God's purposes in Him trying to save. Now, here's where the Arminians were divided. When they protested, they were divided on a particular point. They said, when it comes to whether you can lose your salvation, we're divided. Some of us think that you can lose your salvation and some of us are convinced that you really can't lose your salvation. So we're, we're kind of divided on that issue. So they, they formed a remonstrance, an official protest against the church at large. Now what took place was in 1618 in Dortrecht. The Synod of Dort began. There were 154 meetings. Let me say that again. 154 meetings. It's so different from our culture, isn't it? Think about it for a second. We want an immediate answer. If someone lobs a bomb over the wall, we're like, give them the answer. Push click, right? So it's, it's on a blog tomorrow, right? These guys meet together. You know what they were? Scholars, missionaries, theologians, pastors. They met together, so many of them, for 154 meetings to do what? to listen to the remonstrance, the protest of the followers of a man named Jacob Arminius. Calvin and Jacob Arminius are dead now. They're gone. They're not even around. By the way, if, if you were to walk up to John Calvin in his lifetime and say, hey, tell me about Tulip, he would have walked you to his garden and say, here, dummy, right? Tulip. He wouldn't have had a clue what you were talking about. Because what came out of the Synod of Dort was the acrostic... Tulip, T-U-L-I-P. The response to those protesting was T-U-L-I-P. What they said in response to the protest was T, man is totally depraved, total depravity. What they meant was, listen closely, not that man is as bad as he could possibly be. You see, they believe that God actually restrains people's evil. They didn't believe when they said total depravity that people were as awful sinners as they could possibly be. They believed that, ready, man, men and women, were totally spiritually unable to come to God. Why? Because Ephesians 2 they're dead in your sins and trespasses. They're by nature children of wrath. They are, Romans 1, suppressing the truth of God and unrighteousness. They are enemies of God. They are sinners, help, helpless, ungodly. They go wicked astray from the womb. They are conceived in sin. And so they said, total depravity. That was their response. And they responded with a slew of scriptures. Next, they taught the you unconditional election. You see, what they believed because of the scriptures was that, listen closely, this is big, if God looked through time to see who would believe in him, that what he would be looking at is a spiritual graveyard. He would be looking at dead people. He would look, he'd be looking at corpses if God looked through time to see who would believe in him, he would be looking at people who were rebelling against him and didn't want him. He would be looking, listen to this, at people, Romans 3, who are non-God seekers. He would be looking at John 6, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And another thing, they understood what the implications were. Think about this. Brothers and sisters, is God all-knowing? Let's try. You can, you can come with me here. Is God all-knowing? Yes. Yeah. He knows everything, not because he just takes in knowledge, but because he decrees all things. He's the sovereign of all things. His knowledge is wrapped up in his decree of what will and won't happen. If God is all-knowing, they understood that when you say something like, 
God looks through time to see who will believe in him, and he bases his choice on their choice of him, then that means that God is learning because he's looking through time to learn something about the future and basing a choice of his on that new knowledge. Next, this is important. And by the way, this is the one point. Don't you hear it? People go, I'm good with like four out of five points. What's the point that everybody says they can't go with in the five points? What is it? Look at that. It's unanimous. Limited atonement, right? Person says, I don't believe you should limit God's atonement. I can't go there with the limited atonement thing. What the Calvinists were saying, the Reformers were saying, the Christians of the time were saying was this. When Jesus died on that cross, it was a perfect atonement. It was a salvation that accomplished God's purposes. It was a salvation that actually saved. It was like the angel Gabriel says in the New Testament record around the birth narrative of Jesus, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save whom? His people from their sins. They were saying, no, Jesus died for us on that cross and he accomplished salvation. It was a perfect atonement, a perfect salvation that accomplishes God's purposes. It wasn't an atonement to make people savable. It was a salvation that accomplished everything God intended. So we can say, Jesus died for me on that cross. He took my sins and he accomplished my salvation. It wasn't a theoretical atonement. It was an actual atonement. They also understood in response to the remonstrance, irresistible grace. What they mean? Listen, they did not mean, they did not mean that people aren't sinners and they don't resist God's will in terms of his commands. What they were not saying is that people don't attempt to resist God and his purposes. What they were saying was fundamentally this. Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, by nature children of wrath, ready? But God made you alive together with him, by grace you've been saved. They believe this, that when God comes to bring salvation, the Father decrees, the Son accomplishes, and the Holy Spirit brings that about in the person's life so when the God comes into a person's life who is dead and opposed to him, he, through the means of the gospel and his spirit, listen, he raises that person from death to life. So they go from alienated from God to now alive in God, and now they have the ability as someone who's alive in God to cling to Christ, to trust in him for salvation. And what they were saying is this, that no mortal can resist God who raises the dead. And the final point, and this is where most modern evangelicals, they go, I at least believe that. Perseverance of the saints. What was that? To those who were responding to the protest, they were saying, no, no, no. When God determines to save somebody and Jesus accomplishes their salvation and the Spirit of God brings them to life, you don't go in and out of regeneration. Like, you don't go, you're not like a schizophrenic, like, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. You are regenerated, alive from the dead, joined to Christ in union with him, and God, by his spirit within you, will cause you to persevere to the end. They believed, ready? Heart of stone turned into a heart of what? Flesh. They believe that God lives in his people, and he brings about the good works that they do. They believed John chapter 6. Ready? I've come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who has sent me. And this is the will of him who has sent me, that of all that he has given to me, a particular people, do you hear it? I should lose nothing. Did you catch that? If you want to know what the five points are, really, and you say like, okay, I just want, give me the summary, Jeff. Give me the cliff notes. I'll give it to you. Ready? John 6. The five points of Calvinism in John 6. You want more? John 10. 
Jesus in John chapter 10 says what? I'm the good shepherd. You know the verse, right? He says, I'm the good shepherd. What's the good shepherd do for his sheep? He lays his life down for whom? The sheep. And he says, watch, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, Jews, them I must also bring and they will be one flock with one shepherd and watch. Right after he says that, listen closely, it's in the same text. Good shepherd, life down for the sheep. I'm going to bring them one flock with one shepherd. He says what? To the Jews who say, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. And he says what? Watch, ready? Oh, sorry. I got to give you that sermon. You could download it on my website. No, he's like, he's, oh, you must have missed the sermon, right? Oh, let me go ahead and tell you again. That's not what Jesus says. They say, tell us plainly if you're the Messiah. Just tell us. He says, I told you. And the reason you don't hear me is because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and they come, and I give them eternal life, and they're in my hand, and nothing can snatch them from my hand. They're in my Father's hand, and nothing can snatch them from my Father's hand. Ready? Jesus was a Calvinist. <laughs> that's the story, and that's what they were referring to in the response to the remonstrance. Now, I'm going to go quickly over this next point. Um, Tulip is actually missing something. It's missing something, all right? Like, you have T. What's a T stand for, guys? Total depravity. U, unconditional election. L, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. P, perseverance of the saints. Now, watch. We like to say today, total depravity doesn't quite get across, doesn't really express what we're really saying. So we don't want to say total depravity, really total inability, not able to come to God apart from God's divine work. And the P or the L parts, limited atonement doesn't really express what we're getting at on the atonement. What we want to say is that there was a perfect atonement, Right? We want to say that that atonement actually accomplished something. And so we sometimes don't like the, word, the letters in the acrostic, so we can change them around a bit. But there's something missing from it all, actually, that was undergirding the entire discussion. Do you know what it was? Sovereignty of God. Sovereignty of God. That's under the entire discussion. So, so I've mentioned them now a couple times because... I'm going to recommend a book to you guys. Uh, Dr. White says that he actually thinks it should be stupid. <laughs> the sovereignty of God has to be really what undergirds this entire discussion. The entire thing really rests on the sovereignty of God. And so let's look at a few passages today together. Get your fingers ready, whether you have your uh, cheating devices or your real Bibles, okay? We're going to do it together. I'm just going to go quickly through these. Listen, this, of course, is proof texting, but it's in context, and it is the entire story of God's revelation. But let's just do this for today so you have scriptures to put into your heart. I'm going to unpack a particular one in a minute, but let's do it quickly. Psalm 115.3. Psalm 115.3 is a powerful passage. It seems, in some sense, kind of cavalier. It goes like this, verse 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Here's the answer from scripture, ready? The nations are mocking God. What do they say? Where's your God? Where is he? Where's your God with all the evil happening in the world? Where's your God with all the corruption? Where's your God with all the tragedy? Where's, where's your God when I have my boot on your neck? Where is he? Now, like I said, the answer seems kind of cavalier, doesn't it? Here's God's divine answer to the question, where's your God, as a challenge. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. 
Now that's a verse that takes your legs off because all of us, I think, know what it's like to hurt. We know what it's like to be oppressed. We know what it's like to experience tragedy and loss. We know what it's like to face death. We know what it's like to lose someone that we love. And you know what's amazing? That verse does sound cavalier. Where's your God with your divorce? Where is he? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Where's your God with the loss of your child? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Where's your God with your financial collapse? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Now, you might be tempted to say, that's too cavalier. That's too cutting. It's too short. It doesn't express enough. Do you know the truth? That's the only answer that will suffice. That's the only answer that will truly give comfort. Do you know why? Because the judge of all the earth will always do right. And what you want is this God doing as he pleases. Do you know why? Because what he does for his children is only for their good. Every time there isn't a maverick molecule in the universe, there's not an instance of your life where something enters into your life that thwarts God's purposes or takes him by surprise. Do you know what you want as the foundation of your life? No matter the difficulty or trial, what you want is to be able to answer this. My God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Though he take my life and my stuff, he deserves all the glory and he does everything for his glory and my good. God is the sovereign. Another text just like it, just move the page over to Psalm 135. Psalm 135, the consistent testimony of the scriptures about God's sovereignty, his rule, his control over all things. Psalm 135, 6, here it is again. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth and in the seas and all the deeps. Question, stop. Don't let it, like we always do, we just sort of get mellow-headed and just, woo, verses just go right past us. Did you hear it? Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Well, let's try it. Um, if God pleases, if it pleases God to save a wretched rebel sinner, can he do it? Yes. Welcome to Calvinism. You get it? Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. That's our fundamental assertion. When God wants to save, he saves. When he wants to provide an atonement that will actually atone for the sins of his people, he does it. When he wants to raise a dead sinner to life, he does it. Whatever he pleases, he can accomplish it. Next, Isaiah 46.10. You knew you were getting this one. You knew you were getting this one. Isaiah 46.10, after God spends a great deal of time mocking false gods, after he establishes that he is the only God in terms that cannot be ultimately refuted, after he calls out the idols in the world, challenges them to provide the future, tell us what it'll be and tell us why things happen the way they did. Here's God's answer. Isaiah 46, 10. Let's start in verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my what? Purpose. Call, watch this. This is amazing. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. Watch. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, purposed, and I will do it. Can there be any question about the full reign and rule and sovereignty of God? You know what? I love it. God's sovereignty 
even works down to the small details. One of my favorite things that Jesus says to you and to me as his people in terms of our anxiety and our worry, listen up moms, in terms of our anxiety and our worry is when Jesus talks about it, what's he do? He uses as his greatest argument against your worry and mine, his sovereignty. What's he say? He says, do not be anxious. And you go, okay, that's a command. Not sure if I can hang with that though. Kind of having a hard time, okay? Moms, listen. Moms struggle so much in this era, right? Anxiety and worry, it's just kind of a, a part of what makes up moms wanting to, to, to love and care for their families. And anxiety becomes this great deal for, for mothers, of course for fathers too, but we can usually hide it and fake it, right? Things are great, God is good. Oh my gosh, all right? But what's Jesus do? He, he, he appeals to the sovereignty of God. He says, um, which of you, by your worry, can add a single hour to your life? Can you do it? And your answer to God is, I can't do that. Jesus says, why? Why can't you do that? Well, because you're in control. Ah. So if you can't add a single hour to your life by your anxiety, stop. And then he says, what? The very hairs on your head are numbered. Okay? That's... A super easy task for God with someone like Anthony or Jamie, but for the rest of us, it's actually a pretty cool promise. He knows the hairs. I'm just joking, guys. He knows the hairs on our heads. It's crazy. He knows the number of hairs on my head, and I'm losing them now at too quick a rate, but he knows. And then Jesus says this. He says that a sparrow doesn't fall without the knowledge of your father. A bird doesn't drop dead from a tree without your father in heaven knowing it, not just knowing about it, but watch, determining the life of that creature, the sovereignty of God. Let's do some more. Just a handful of verses for you. Daniel 4, 35. Go back to the Old Testament. Daniel 34, no, sorry, 4, 35. Another text, powerful Let's start, sorry, in verse uh, 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Here it is. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? You know what we love to do? Listen closely. We love to say that Jesus is sovereign and Lord and in control in heaven, right? I borrowed this from my friend. We love to say that Jesus is king over Neverland. He deserves that. But that's not the God of the Bible. It says here in this text, from the mouth of a pagan king, he says that he, God, does according to whose will? His will. Where? Heaven? Everyone goes, well, yeah, God can control the angels. It's fine that he controls them. But it actually says, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay his hand and say, what have you done? You know what that means? Listen, that God is in control of who won the last presidency. He is. He's actually in control of who won before that. It wasn't ultimately the American voters who put a wicked leader like Barack Obama in charge of our country. It was ultimately God himself, I believe, judging our nation by giving our nation a wicked ruler. When God raises up these rulers to lead people, know this, Nobody thwarted his sovereignty. He determined what would and would not take place in the world. He raises nations up and he brings them down. When a nation has a good ruler, you have to know that that's a blessing from God. That's a gift from God. When we see evil happening around us in the world, we're tempted as fallen, finite creatures. We're tempted to say, where is God? He can't be in control of this. We're losing. And the answer, honestly, is 
Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Jesus is king on his throne, putting his enemies under his feet. If something is happening in the world, do you know why it's happening? It's fundamentally happening for the glory of God and, listen, the good of his people. Every detail. Every single detail. He's sovereign. He does according to his will. Another verse, Job 42, 2. Just write it down. Another verse, 2 Chronicles, Chronicles, Chronicles 20, verse 6. Isaiah 43, 13. Now I want to read you these last few because they're pretty powerful. Proverbs 16.9. Proverbs 16.9. Here's the verse. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Hey, do you have stories? Do you have stories like me as a Christian who walk with God for a little while? Do you have, listen, think about it for a moment now. And I want you to try to consider this so this doesn't just become a proof texting moment where you think about, oh, that's a great verse and God's in control of my steps. Can I ask you this? Do you know instances in your life where you had a whole plan for how you were going to do something, a direction you were going to go, and all of a sudden your world shifted? And, and do, do you, like me, have stories where you thought one thing was the way and you were chasing it down, you were pursuing it, trying to be faithful, and then God all of a sudden took the rug out from underneath you and he put you in a different place and you were like, now what are you doing? Why would you do that? I had this whole plan, God. I, had, I prepared for this. I, I put money into this. I was going this direction. This was totally like for your glory and you did this? Why? Maybe you struggled, but then time went on and you saw what God did. You saw the people that he put in your life. You saw the lives that were changed. You saw something in that God altered your course and you finally look back and what do you say? God, thank you. Thank you that you altered my course, my path. God, thank you that you took that away from me. God, thank you that you didn't let me have that. I wouldn't have it any other way. The story of this church is very much like that. It's very much like that. Oh my goodness, the story of this church, the, all your stories, we could just sit down and just talk about the sovereignty of God and His providence. But even this church itself, I was going to South Carolina. Many of you guys know my house is boxed up. It was in, it was in boxes down to this. We were eating off of plastic stuff. It was boxes all over my house. We're leaving. One-year search committee process of a church in South Carolina. We were going. I was saying my final goodbyes. I was shepherding and pastoring at a church at the time. Then all of a sudden, listen, the world fell apart where I was at. The church was experiencing some struggles. And then I got a call from a friend that said, hey, we lost our pastor at this hospital. It's a rehab. Can you come and fill in tonight for him because he's gone? I'm like, all right. It's a room full of people that can't leave. I can tell them about Jesus. I'm in. So I go that night and I preach the gospel to this room of people that are just like me. People that were in their addiction to drugs and alcohol. Now they're sitting in front of me and I'm preaching Christ to them. People got saved that night. And all of a sudden, this weird thing came over me. I'm ready to make the phone call to go to South Carolina. We're leaving. We're leaving. And I just felt like, I don't know why I can't leave. I can't. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why I can't leave. So I call this guy and I say, hey... I don't know what to tell you because I know that this is a unanimous decision and you're waiting for me to give you the okay to send the truck, but I don't think I'm supposed to go right now. He says, Jeff, it's really weird. I'm your biggest supporter. And if you say yes, I'm pulling the trigger and the truck's at your house. You got tickets. You're coming out. He said, but I feel like something's up right now too. I don't know what it is. And then all of a sudden, more stuff started falling apart at where I was at, and now we are in a place where we're penniless, and we have no ability to survive, but we're saying we're going to trust you, God. We don't know what in the world you're doing, but we'll stay. So many things took place to get to where we're at today, where I thought I was going one place in my life, and God directed the steps elsewhere. And you know what I say today? Thank you, God. Thank you that you didn't let me go. Thank you that you didn't let it happen. 
Thank you that you had a much better plan than I did. You're sovereign. You're in control. God allows us to plan and to decide and to be faithful on a path, but he's the one ultimately orchestrating the entire story. And what for? Ready? So the end of your life, he can draw praise from your lips because you'll look back and see the glorious hand of God's providence every single step of the way, whether it was a job that you lost. Ultimately, that's a job that God took away from you. Whether it was money that you lost or money gained, that was from the hand of God. Whatever your circumstances, God is sovereign. Now watch this. Here's what's important to get. When we say God is sovereign, we don't believe in some sort of fatalism that God doesn't work through the actual desires of, their own, of His own creatures. What, what we say is this, listen closely, God is sovereign and we are His creatures and we have a creaturely will. We're making decisions. We want to do what we do. There's nothing that we do that we don't ultimately desire, but that God is in control as to whether or not He allows us to have our desires or not. God is the sovereign even over our ultimate choices. He can stop people. He can allow people. People ask the question, what's with our country right now? What's wrong with our country right now? Destroying the family, destroying our children, not knowing if they're men or women, going the other direction from God saying, no, we don't want God's word. And people are saying, what's wrong with the world? And the answer, Romans 1, what's it say? It says, people know God, they suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness, they know Him so clearly and vividly that they become fools and they switch God for idols. And what does it say? It says, therefore, God gave them over. To do what? What is against nature. So we see even in that instance of Romans 1, when people even go off into sexual, per, sexually perverse things, it's not something that ultimately they are thwarting God in but God who is determined to let them have what they want. Why? Ultimately, in that case, as judge, as a just judge, God is sovereign. I'll just point you, I won't read the text, but just point you to two instances, and then we're done. Number one, Genesis. Read it later. The story of Joseph and his brothers, you know it. What happened? His brothers want him dead. They throw him into a pit, right? He goes into slavery. He's in Potiphar's house. He's faithful, 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 faithful. Woman wants to sleep with him. He's like, no thanks. He gets thrown into a dungeon. Then he becomes essentially prince over Egypt. And what happens when his brothers, like 20 years later, later get back in front of him? What's he say? He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In the Hebrew, it's parallel. You meant evil against me. God meant it for good. Your intention evil, God's intention and purpose good. And he says to them when they're in front of him and he's weeping and they finally realize that Joseph, their brother, is in charge of Egypt, he says what? He says, and it's crazy, you can say this as a Christian, he says, you didn't send me here, God did. And you think for a second, now that's a little convoluted, Joseph. They would have probably been like, ah, uh, no, I did it. Now I threw you into the pit. Reuben, from which we get the name of the sandwich. He was like, I threw you in. I did it, right? I threw you in. It was like, like, I was part of that whole situation. I actually remember the slave traders. I remember the thing going through, the merchants, and I put you on that thing, and Potiphar, we did it. And, and Joseph says, you didn't send me here. God did. And why? Watch to preserve for you a remnant. Now that's crazy sauce. God says, I'm going to let you sin for my purposes. Watch, I'm going to let you sin so that you can send Joseph there so that I can preserve for you a family. So watch, he does this. He actually sovereignly controls their desire to sin. He says, go ahead, I'll let you have it. Go ahead, throw your brother into there. Oh, not too far. They were like, we're going to kill him. And then he's like, we shouldn't kill our brother, right? And God's like, nope. He lets him go. And why? 
He lets them sin to do what? Save them. We're going to go ahead and cut it out right there, and uh, I'll just echo his words. That's crazy sauce. Ladies and gentlemen, that's Calvinism. That's Calvinism. God is in control. He is ultimately and utterly sovereign. It's a, it's a very hard thing to wrap your head around. We had uh, Bishop uh, Staples uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, he was screaming at us that it's necessary. What is it? Everything is necessary. It's actually a very Calvinist uh, message. Every wrong thing that has happened to you, furthermore, every wrong thing that you did was necessary. This is what he explicitly said. Well, uh, toward the uh, end of this session today, this is also what the preacher uh, said. Not quite as explicitly, but kind of. Um, it's necessary. This is a part of God's will. The thing, the dance that Calvinists have to do, and I have been studying this for a long time, and I've talked to a lot of Calvinists, I've read a lot of Calvinist uh, work. I have some sympathies uh, toward Calvinism as a doctrine, because it does seem like much of the Bible, much of the time, uh, is is presenting these ideas of God's absolute sovereignty. Uh, if if there is evil done, uh, it's it's God who is responsible for that, just as well as the good. Some Old Testament writers seem to um, have that in mind. So these these are not foreign notions to to theology. It, it may sound funny to your ear if you don't have a lot of experience with Calvinism, but it is it is not actually uh, that odd in light of some of the things that the Bible says. So the, the challenge that Calvinists have is how to make God sovereign over everything, including our sin, without making him culpable for evil, including our sin. This is, this is, um, this is a difficult thing to pull off. And I still don't understand it. And when I hear sermons like this, especially, you know, the last two or three minutes of uh, what we heard today, it's just very, very confusing to me. So uh, in the story he uh, of Joseph and his brothers, he says very clearly that, you know, it's, it's, it was evil of them. They intended evil. We have free will. Uh, we want to do evil, but we can never thwart God's plan. And at some point, he even said, not merely that God works through our evil, but requires it. It's it's a part of his plan to do this. D Joseph didn't uh, get himself uh, into Egypt, and he says his brothers aren't responsible for him being in Egypt. He's in Egypt because God wanted him in Egypt. It wasn't just that God wanted him there generally. It's not like he had the option to just take a train. No, he wanted Joseph in Egypt exactly the way he got there. So he needed Joseph's brothers to be evil. But it's as if God has a dial, and the dial is uh, marked with various levels of evil. So he gave the desire to do evil to Joseph's brother, but only up to a point. So he's turning the dial. They do enough evil to be jealous. They do enough evil to, uh, to, to beat him up, uh, leave him almost for dead, sell him into slavery. But, oh, no, let's not kill him. Because they wanted to kill him, and it's like, oh, no, 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 God, God takes control of the dial again, a little too far, let's just dial it back. I need you to beat him up and sell him into slavery. I don't need you to kill him, so I'm not going to let you desire to kill him 
you know, and when that desire just starts to peak, I'm going to, I'm going to turn the dial, uh, on, you know, one of your brothers to talk you out of it and, and change your desires. So it's, it's God moving the dial to the levels of evil that he wants. Joseph was sold into uh, slavery and into Egypt because God set the dials of evil for his brothers. It wasn't just that they were evil and had intentions of evil because then they would be able to boast, yeah, we did it, but they can't. It was all God all the time. And so somehow it's all God, but they're still responsible for their, their evil. And they wanted to do more evil, but God turned the dial to change their very desire to do evil. This is Calvinism. This is crazy sauce. I have so much more to say uh, about this, and there are more sermons on Calvinism that I will get to. Uh, my week is going to be uh, kind of kind of weird. So I'm actually putting this into the feed a day early, a half a day early. So you're you're getting this on Saturday, the day that I'm recording, and um, hopefully at some point next week I will be able to do a supplemental and talk some more about this sermon in particular, but it's possible that I won't be able to do that. And next week, your, uh, or later this week, next week, the next show, it will come out early. It will come out on Thursday. Uh, for those of you following Red Letters, that show usually comes out on Friday. That's going to come out on Thursday as well. My weekend is going to be uh, impossibly lost. And so I can either do it all late or I can do it early. So I'm going to, I'm going to drop those things early. I'll try to get some supplementals in, but once again, this, this week is uh, a little bit upside down. So it's going to be a little bit weird and, uh, whatever I don't get to just know that it wasn't because I forgot or because I didn't want to, it's just because I couldn't. Uh, but we'll, hopefully get the week back on track and get the uh, programs back on track in about a week and a half. So you're not going to get cheated out of any shows, but the timing might get moved around a little bit. I might have to do a half a show here and uh, a half a show uh, at another time to make it, uh, to make it up. So uh, we'll see how that uh, all goes. This is crazy sauce. We'll see you next time.